0: this morning we're in Psalm 40, and we've been looking at psalms for some weeks now according to type, according to the different genre for the literarily sophisticated among us, if you prefer that word, different types of psalms, and and we've seen there are several different types of them. 50 out of the 150 psalms are laments, psalms of lament, psalms of sorrow and mourning and regret and doubt. And that tells us that the psalms are very much about real-life stuff. They dig into the normal and ordinary and honest, really, stuff of life. And this psalm really does the same. You young Christians, as you listen to me as I read it, see if you can pay attention and hear, what are some things that you hear in this psalm that Jesus did? Listen carefully and see if you can tell there are a number of them. What are some things here in this psalm that Jesus himself did. This is Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love. And your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us your spirit. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Father, enable us to recognize how you have come and drawn us up out of the pit and given us life in Christ. Give us that faith anew, even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He may be seated. Well, you probably know that some psalms are made famous in different sorts of ways. And this one, for the culturally astute of you, you will know, was made famous by an Irish band, right? About 30 years ago. About 30 years ago, you two sang this song 40 a haunting and uplifting song that became very popular in U2's um, collection of, of work. And the interesting thing is about that song, 40, as Bono sung it, is that they didn't even get past the third verse of this song. Maybe you U2 fans remember that. They didn't even get past the third verse of it. The the whole song camps out in the first three verses of this 17 verse psalm but that's okay because waiting whether waiting patiently for the lord or waiting anxiously for yourself is a very daily and very human sort of experience and that's where this psalm takes you the new testament reading that you heard moments ago from hebrews 10 i know the the microphone was a little fuzzy i could hear the kind of feedback going there i hope that you could hear that okay From Hebrews 10, that that New Testament reading begins like this. The writer to the Hebrews says this. When Christ came into the world, he said, and then the writer quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7 and 8. He, He quotes these verses. The interesting thing about that is in the gospel accounts, there is no record of Jesus ever having said these words. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he didn't. We don't have recorded all the things that he said and did. We know that. He said and did many things that aren't recorded in the Gospel accounts. Maybe he really did take these words literally upon his lips, but we don't have a record of that. So it's interesting that the writer to the Hebrews would tell us literally, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8, We read a moment ago something kind of similar in that Improving Our Baptism part from Galatians 3. We read Paul's words to the Galatians. He said this, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. Did you hear that? You said it with me a while ago. Did you hear it when you said that? And did it it strike you as strange? Now, Paul wrote many things in many different ways, but he didn't necessarily tend to be very poetic. But there in Galatians 3, he personifies Scripture as something that speaks and sees. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, Paul says. And it's interesting, it's related to this Hebrews 10 quote of Psalm 40 in that the Old Testament is not just a collection of inanimate books about history and poetry, and prophecy, and such. But rather, it's the very Word of God, alive and active, as is the new. The Psalms, you could say, are the prayers of the second person of the Trinity, prayed through David and all of the others who wrote them for us. These are the prayers of Jesus, prayed through the voices of others who came Before him the inspired word of God and the Psalter covers the whole range of human experience, you know We've seen that in different ones of these Psalms. It covers joy and sadness It covers hope and despair and elation and anger and and on the list goes it covers the whole range of Human experience and so as the words of Jesus They show that he actually takes on the whole of human nature upon himself He takes your place the psalms tell you. And in this psalm, he does so in some specific ways, some very ordinary things, some of the very ordinary cycles of common life. He takes your place here. Now, this is, I think, a psalm of lament. It it contains some other elements to it, some elements of, of a psalm of confidence and trust. And some psalms are more messianic, more explicitly pointing to Jesus than others are. And This one I think we know from Hebrews is that as well. So I want to approach this psalm for these moments from the the perspective and the direction of the words of Jesus as the writer to the Hebrews tells us he said. And this is what you heard a moment ago, what he said. The words of Jesus, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, O Lord, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Those were the words of Jesus in Hebrews, the words of the psalmist in verses 6, 7, and 8. And then when Jesus had expressed God's disinterest, really, in the sacrifices and offerings and such, all of which were required by the Old Testament law, he then said, Instead, I have come to do your will. A body you've given to me, a body you have prepared for me. Even That's sacrifice language. Preparation of a body. And Jesus would fulfill the first of those with the second. He would fulfill the sacrifices with his body, the writer to the Hebrews explains to us. And he says, By that will of God we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words... He has taken your place. He has taken your place, this psalm says. You know, Christians like to think of the psalms, and non-Christians do too, who are interested in things like this. We like to think of the psalms because they seem to speak for us. They, they take our words and our experiences and, and put them to life in Scripture, and they very much do that. But they also speak for Jesus. They are His words. And as the sacrifice before God, He takes your place to do what you cannot. He takes your place to establish your footing. Verses 1 through 3. You know, as I was reading those verses, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction. Some of you were hearing that iconic sound of that Irish band 30 years ago. You were hearing the the strums of the guitar and and the, the dwelling of that song on the, the new song that God had given to sing, the, the new song, how long shall we sing this song? And the song, 40, you 2s song, dwells on that upbeat part of the psalm. But the psalm is more than that. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to hear my cry. David is remembering a time before when he was down in the depths, when he was in the pit, so to speak. In in the Hebrew, emphasis often is given by doubling up words. What he says here is, I waited, waited for the Lord. He might have been patient, but to him it seemed like a long, long time that he had to wait because he was in a very bad place. He was in a pit. The common assumption about this particular psalm and the imagery that it's giving is that it's someone who's stuck in a cistern. A cistern is not a place where you would typically be. It was a hole in the ground that would hold water for storage. And, and Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into a cistern at one time by people who didn't like the things he had to say, and he was left there in the muck and the mire of the bottom of the cistern to die until he was rescued from those who had pity on him. And David seemingly is in such a cistern figuratively. He's just in, in the, the, the miry, swampy marsh of trouble it might be the trouble of of the threats of an enemy it might be the trouble of of being discouraged by his own personal sin which he is later in the psalm or it might just be the trouble of doubt doubt is something significant in the christian life and in all of life whether you're a christian or not doubt is something that creeps in in all kinds of different forms and ways into our thinking and believing and doubt can be related for one, to knowledge. It can be simply, I'm not so sure that what I know is actually true. That's doubt. But it also can take another form. It can be relational. It can take the form of, I'm not so sure that you're going to be faithful to me. I doubt you, relationally. And, and that's an element of doubt that the Psalms really dwell on. There's much of that in the Psalms because there's so much of that in us. We're not so sure about each other much less about God himself. Is he really going to be faithful to me? Maybe that's what David is mired down and bogged down in this pit with, the doubt, and he can't get out. And it's here where Christianity really begins to distinguish itself from all of the other world religions. In Christianity, it's recognized that a sovereign action is required, and that action is going to be filthy. That action is going to be sovereign and it's going to be filthy. Only in Christianity does God actually come down to where you are and take the initiative and get dirty in the mess of where you are to draw you out and establish your footing even in the midst of your doubts to prove to you and to show you His faithfulness in the midst of your doubts. This is why the, the Pharisees, this the sovereign action, this is why the Pharisees who I spoke of a while ago who claimed Abraham as their father, got themselves rebuked by Jesus because the fruit of their lives was to construct a ladder, to climb themselves up out of the pit on their own. Your baptism is God's promise to set your foot upon a rock. It's God's promise to, to draw you up out of the pit and to set you upon the rock, even in the midst of your own doubts. The fact is you can only be rescued from above. He takes your place to establish your footing. He takes your place as well, the psalmist says, to refuse temptation. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. By giving his body as a sacrifice, Jesus came to take your place to refuse temptation. Now, not just to resist temptation. That's the word we often think of in terms of to resist temptation. But Jesus came to refuse temptation, to put his arm out and say, no, go away. He takes your place to do that. You know, temptation is really just an opportunity to turn. That's the nature of what temptation is in Scripture. It's an an opportunity to reveal who or what you actually trust. And verse 4, as we read it here, describes something that Jesus faced very directly and explicitly after his baptism. Maybe you know the story. He was led by the Spirit out to the wilderness for 40 days, and the Gospel accounts tell us exactly why he was led there. Quote, to be tempted by the devil. That was why he went out for 40 days. He fasted in the wilderness, and at the end of that time, he was tempted by the devil. At his weakest moment and point, there he was, standing before Satan, the father of the proud, the teller of lies, tempting him to turn to him. And so here is the second Adam, the first Adam, also was tempted by the father of lies the, the, the proud and he turned the second Adam now is in the same place and Satan says to him turn to me Jesus and don't be hungry you remember the, the account in the Gospels don't be hungry Jesus just control your destiny and turn that stone into bread turn away from God and turn to me or Jesus turn to me and don't be small Worship me and see all of these world kingdoms that I have at my disposal. They can be yours, too, if you'll just turn away from God and turn to me. Or, Jesus, turn to me and don't be submissive. Who wants to be submissive? Test the Scripture, Jesus. Throw yourself down off of this building and see what's going to happen. Don't be submissive. Test the Scripture, Turn away from God and turn to me. Now, for all of us, however mature you might be in Christ, however many years you might have been walking in faith with Jesus, there is a limit to your ability to refuse temptation, right? I mean, you know that by experience. At some point, you come upon your own weak spots. At what point do you find yourself unable to? to resist, and certainly unable to refuse, to simply reject the temptation that faces you. We all have those limits, those points that we arrive at. Jesus came to the point after all these temptations where he simply said, be gone, Satan. The Lord only shall you worship. Be gone. And he refused it. In your place, he refused to turn to the to the proud, to turn to the one who tells lies. Why did he do that? You know, in First Corinthians 10, there's that well-known verse that says this about the same subject. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. But what? When you're tempted, God will provide the way of escape. But what is that way of escape? The psalmist knows, I think. He says here in this passage, after Turning to the proud and refusing this, he says, Many, O Lord, are your wondrous deeds for us. None can compare. They're more than can be told, he says there in verse 5. He recognizes simply that in comparison to what's being offered to him, this is what God is. This is what the gospel has to offer to you. This is the life in Christ that is provided for you for free by faith. In comparison, why would you want something else? There's the way of escape. The the recognition of of God's wondrous deeds for us leads us to gratitude and and actually to a desire to refuse temptation. And so Jesus takes our place in that way. He also then takes our place in another way to proclaim the gospel. Again, these are just cycles of life that we all recognize, I think. Verses 9 and 10. You know, everybody is an evangelist. We all are. We're, we're all an evangelist. We want to talk about and tell whatever it is that we think is great, whether it's some particular business practice or some medical procedure that, well, just changed your life or some parenting techniques or relational styles. We're all evangelists for something, whatever it is that matters so much to us. This is what he writes here. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. When it comes to justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, who of us can claim these words? I mean, who of us can actually say, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. Oh, Lord, you know it. I have I have never refused to say the good news that I know of you to those who are within earshot of me. Who of us can say that? I've taken every opportunity to speak of you. I mean, even just within the midst of this assembly here, you know, you've had opportunities to, to say an encouraging word to a brother or sister who... You know, needs it, and maybe you've missed the opportunity. Maybe you've shied away from the opportunity because you weren't maybe sure what to say. Or maybe you approached it and and did it poorly even. You know, who of us can claim these words of verses nine and ten? We're we're all different. I mean, we're all going to go about this differently according to our gifts and abilities and our personality styles. You know, this morning is is the alms collection that our deacons take up once a month, and, and our deacons have the the fun um, responsibility of coming up and speaking to you from the pulpit afterwards, and you know some of them enjoy it and some of them don't, and and I I can appreciate that deacons brothers I, I appreciate that you know sometimes it's kind of kind of daunting to think I want to speak to to all these people and what am I going to say you know we all have have our our love hate relationship with speaking of the gospel and proclaiming it none of us does it perfectly but Jesus takes your place. These are the words of Christ. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I've not concealed it. Jesus is at work, even now, proclaiming his word to his people. And you might hear that and breathe a sigh of relief and think, well, good, then I don't have to. I don't have to say a word. I can just sit back and forget it and let him do all the work. But then you've not really understood the gospel. You know, it's the same motivation for refusing temptation. His wondrous deeds are many. None can compare with him. In fact, they're more than can even be told, but I will tell because they're so wondrous. Even as you stumble along in this, you know, he takes your place. Because he came also to bear your guilt. Verses 11 to 15, verse 11 reads kind of like a psalm of confidence, doesn't it? You will not restrain your mercy from me, I know. O Lord, your steadfast love, your faithfulness will preserve me. He's speaking like a psalm of confidence, and I think it's because he's preaching the gospel to himself because he knows where he is now. He's actually back in the pit. You know, this again, the psalmists deal with real-life stuff. Not everything is hunky-dory, hokey-pokey stuff. He's back in the pit. Earlier, he was in the destructive pit of miry doubt, and now it's actually even worse. What does he say? Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. His own sin has overwhelmed him. It's even prevailed against him. And so, O oh Lord, please deliver me from myself, he prays. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at that point where your own iniquity, if you want to use that word, your own sin, your own failures, your own guilt, overwhelms you? I think that's, again, a normal part of the Christian life. In fact, I think that it happens even more as you get older. The the older you get, so you younger Christians, you know, be discouraged. It's just going to get worse. (laughs) The older you get, I think, the worse it gets in some sense because you recognize how deeply rooted your garbage is in your life. You get to be 40 years old, 50 years old, and you begin to realize, this stuff that I mocked about myself when I was younger, I thought it would change, it hadn't changed. It's gotten deeper, and it's even harder. In fact, I really don't even want to change. And you begin to recognize how deep it goes, and if the Spirit's at work, He's going to overwhelm you. It's going to prevail against you, and you're going to say what David says here, God have mercy. My iniquities have overtaken me. But, you know, there's even more here, actually, because David says there are some, some other people out there who want to snatch away his life, who want to see him actually be hurt, who want to mock him and say, aha, aha, the people who are watching him and pointing fingers at him. Now, sometimes the world looks at Christians Sometimes the world looks at the church and says, Aha. I know you people are supposed to be good moral people and behave well, but aha, I see what you're like. Now I see what you're doing and I see who you really are. And you know what? A lot of the time, most of the time, all the time, they're right. They're they're right because our guilt runs so deep. But Jesus came to take our place. These words are His words. You know, picture Him on the cross. Imagine this is where He is when these words come to His heart. Evils have encompassed me. My iniquity has overtaken me. Can you imagine Him saying that? My iniquity has overtaken me. He had no iniquity, but guess what? God made Jesus, who had no iniquity, to be iniquity for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes ours as his own, and he's overwhelmed by the weight of guilt. And even the accuser, the accuser, sought to shame him. Aha, aha, Satan said to him as he hung on the cross. But as Jesus died under the weight of our guilt, under the weight of our sin, and then rose again by the power of the Spirit, Satan would be appalled. This psalm applies to the cross, doesn't it? I mean, this is what happened at the cross. Satan himself would be shamed and appalled and put away because Jesus came to take your place and to bear your guilt and so also to orient you to God. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May they say continually, great is the Lord. And the cycles of of ordinary life, you know, we we forget this. Because we have, as a friend of mine once said, the, the, the attention span of a goldfish. You ever think about a goldfish who lives in a glass bowl of water? and what that must be like to swim around and not have much room to swim, but you look this way and you see this, and then you turn around and you see that, and you turn around and you see then the scenery never changes. But a goldfish is okay because, well, he has the attention span of a goldfish. And when he turns around the other direction, he says, oh, look, something new. And he turns back the other way, oh, look, something new, because he can't remember what he saw two or three seconds ago, and so he's okay. In some sense, we're like, the attention span of a goldfish. The, the gospel calls you to form the habit of remembering to rejoice in God. And that requires a proper orientation. You know, in, in in life in a city like Dallas, those waters can get to be pretty muddy because we're so busy. We have long commutes in our car to get to places. We spend lots of time driving around and, and, and trying to achieve and do the things that we're here in this city to do. We're, we're kind of cosmopolitan overachievers in so many ways. And we easily forget this orienting gospel truth. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but God is my deliverer. And so the Son of God took your place and took those very words upon himself. So, Now they're yours. Now they're your words to say. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but God is my deliverer. He's my help. Now, to begin to wrap it up here and take it all back as a whole, I want to make something of a detail that took place in that that quotation from Hebrews 10. Back in those central verses, 6, 7, and 8, Kind of the verses that this whole thing revolves around, I think, that Jesus took our place as the sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews makes a very subtle but I think important change as he puts these words on Jesus' lips. The, the, the Psalm 40, David says in verse 6, he says, You have given me an open ear. He's discounting the sacrifices. You didn't require sacrifices. You did give me an open ear. It's a Hebrew idiom. The Hebrew language is very colorful in so many ways, like English. What he's literally saying is, the Lord has dug for me an ear. You can kind of picture Mr. Potato Head. You're, you're, you're sticking the eyes in, and then you, you dig the ears into the side of his head so he can hear. You've dug for me ears to make me hear. This is what the psalm says, but in Hebrews, when the words are Jesus' words, it's just a little bit different. Did you, did you hear it? What he said was, sacrifices, offerings you didn't require, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you've prepared for me. Again, it's language that's specific to a sacrifice. Ears for David, a body for Jesus. Ears for you and me, a body for Jesus. What's the point of hearing anyway? What's the point of having ears to hear? It's that it leads to doing. Again, back to Father Abraham, you can, you can say all you want about being a son or daughter of Abraham, but if you're not doing what's proper in response to that, then there's no proof of it. Hearing leads to doing. What you do is proof of what you believe. You know, you might say, I know I shouldn't be greedy with money, but I'm, I'm just not ready to give generously yet at this point in my life. It's because you don't have ears to hear. You might say, I know I shouldn't worry about this and that all the time, but I'm just not ready to release control. Not yet, because you don't have ears to hear. You know, we tend to think, Lord, you've given me a body to do your will, so I'm going to try my hardest to do it. Okay, but do you really? Do you really? This is the difference between Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10, and it's very profound because it tells you exactly what the gospel is. He has taken your place. Do you hear that? I, I heard this past week on an old CD, a, a, a pirated CD that a friend ripped and gave to me because he wanted me to have it years ago. It's an, it's an old um, collection of of, uh, music from a christian musician who was very thoughtful and and one of the lines that he sings in there really struck me he said i repent i repent of paying for what i get for free isn't that striking i repent of paying for what i get for free we do too much he has taken your place. So stop paying for what he with his body has already done. Instead, hear him and believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh Lord, we pray that you would give to us ears to hear. Enable us, Lord to believe and to recognize that You have, in fact, taken our place, that You have called us to follow after You by faith, and that You have given to us ears to hear as Your Spirit works, but You've given even more greatly a body to Your Son so that He might step into our place and gain for us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.